We have a philosophy focusing on what's needed now, what's coming up next, and what is the future going to look like. The roadmap is the intent. It's not actually a clear sign of execution. And so we've been talking about how we focus on the market. And, and in many cases, one of the things that's driven us, this is important for MVP, is uh, learning from our lessons. Our failures teach us just as much as our successes. The key is knowing how to very quickly learn from those mistakes and translate them into lessons that can be successful. I always say to the team, we're going to break things, but we have to fix them cheerfully. My name is Kai Pedersen. I'm the CTO with Astromu. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries. Spent six months moonlighting. There's nothing on the back end who share what it takes to change an industry. I don't exactly know what to do next. many goes to get right. Who built the teams that have their back. Our company is its people. The teams help each other achieve. Most proud of our team. Keeping scalability top of mind. All that infrastructure was a Yes, we've been fighting it as we grow. Total waste of time. The stories you don't read in the headlines. It's not an easy thing to achieve, Mike. Took it off the shelf and dusted it off and tried it again. To ride the ups and downs of the startup life. You need to really it's want it. Not just about technology. All this and more on Code Story. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today how Kai Pedersen is using machine learning and data and leading the movement towards skill-based hiring. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open source edge database from the creators of LibSQL. Do you put your edge computing close to your users? You should put your data there too. Terso makes this easy utilizing the developer experience of SQLite. Access a free starter plan at terso.tech slash codestory. Terso, welcome to the data edge. This episode is brought to you by our friends at MemberStack. MemberStack is the fastest way for you to launch a beautiful Webflow MVP with robust authentication and smooth payments integration. Join companies like Slack and American Airlines in serving millions of members every single day. Get started for free by visiting memberstack.com slash codestory. Kai Pedersen was born in Zambia, Africa, and has traveled all throughout his life, through Africa, Europe, but has now landed in the United States. He has had tons of exposure to cultures and countries which he's fond of. But outside of tech, he's married with a family and loves climbing, a.k.a. being a mountaineer. When he isn't climbing, he likes to read a broad array of books and scuba dive, of which he mentioned Fiji was the coolest place he dove. In 2017, the founders of Astromu kicked off the idea to build a company focused on creating equity to the value of education for everyone. They wanted to do this by tracking hard and soft skills at the individual level. Though he couldn't join the company at that time, Kai eventually joined in 2019 to take the initial idea to 1.0 conception. This is the creation story of Astromu. Astromu, in, in a nutshell, what we're trying to do is we're trying to level the playing field uh, by quantifying the value of education for everyone. And so what that means is we are very interested in tracking at the individual level somebody's hard and soft skills so that we can form a competency model around their capabilities. And, and the idea is, is that if you actually understand where somebody is today in terms of their skills, you can then map that into educational opportunities. 
where they can then uh, close any gaps and, and successfully match themselves to roles in the job market. And the reason why we came into being, frankly, is we realized that there's a massive change going on within the education sector as a whole. A lot of people are no longer doing degrees or they're walking away from doing degrees because they don't see the value in the degree. The, the sad thing is a lot of companies are still using that as a sort of brute force filtering method for selecting people to fill roles, which means you have this massive underserved community of but employable individuals uh, who, by virtue of the fact that they don't have a degree, can't actually uh, secure a role. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to us because we know that they have skills and we know that they have capabilities. And in many cases, the roles that they are applying for don't actually need a degree to pick up that job. And so our view is, is there a way that we can close that gap uh, and help people, uh, particularly around workforce development, find the right role for themselves by identifying the right program that gets them the skills they need for that role? Uh, can we help companies retain uh, people because we're able to surface those individuals in a way that aligns them to the values of the company? And so there's a much stronger correlation between long-term success with the company than people who just applied for the job. And so that sort of supports the retention side. And then there's the optimization piece, which is by them working with companies on their strategic capabilities, we can help them identify who in their employee base has certain skills and if they're trying to make a strategic shift into a new field, for example, what are the skills required for that new field? And who in their employee base has those skills or is close to those skills and can actually close the gap by getting additional training so that the company can optimize their workforce as it stands? The origination story is uh, Adam saw this opportunity, and I think when he first approached me, it was in 2017. At the time, I was with another company, but he showed me this idea and we started talking about it. And it was funny because I looked at him, I said, I tried to solve that problem in 2001 with another company, but we were doing it around tests where we would identify skills based on, on the distractor analysis of the responses from the, the standardized test and then surface that up as a way of helping close the gap. I was totally excited about what he was looking to do and what his vision was around that. And then those early days, at that, at that time, I remember saying to him, you know what, I can't join you right now, but here's my business plan from 2001. And, and you can see what we were trying to do back then and see if there was any lessons to be learned. And, and so he started the company back then in 2017. In the early stages, what they were doing was really trying to do a lot of work around validating and trying to understand if there was, a, if there was this opportunity. And so they incubated within the Kansas University system. And that's where a lot of the initial work around trying to identify how do you get access to verified skills, the student level, uh, what are the sort of models you have to put in place to do it in a secure manner so that you're actually protecting the privacy of the individual as well, and, and, and what tools uh you know, would be available in terms of the what would the universities look for to support that so that was our initial sort of foray into it when i joined the company which i think was 2019 i came in and they had a very simple proof of concept very rudimentary it was essentially a sql server database with student records that they were able to the data science team were able to create a simple matching algorithm that enabled us to do an analysis on the student body to show what they were able to successfully achieve after they left university so we had this uh, 360 view of the alumni 
there was a lot of work that needed to be done to stand up the AI engine and the AI stack because it was very rudimentary. So in that first six months, we got into it and built the AI engine as it stands today. And we call that level set. So it's this platform where we essentially are able to ingest data, whether it's structured, semi-structured, or unstructured, process it, look at it, evaluate it, and then ultimately come up with our machine learning models to deliver the features that are then used by our products. Because ultimately what we want to do is we want to embed in the workflow of other companies. So we're more of a data services company than we are trying to sell through product that enables people to come in and build a view of their talent around a skills index that we can then help them identify the pathways that can lead to recommendations for either training or jobs. Let's dive into the MVP of the product. So the first version of the product, either you know when you joined or the one you know of as, as the farthest back one. Tell me about that MVP. How long it took to build and what sort of tools were used to bring it to life? Our first real MVP was probably what we call campaigns. And in fairness, the, the first product that we had was really, it was very rudimentary. And, I, and, and to be honest with you, it was probably not a good example of what to do. So that was the lesson we learned from that. And so we moved into building our own stack. And the way we did that actually is we, I'm a big fan of trying to accelerate execution where it makes sense. One of the first things I realized is that we needed to build out a robust and capable AI platform. We had a number of choices. We could build it ourselves, which to me didn't make a lot of sense, uh, or we could partner and make some decisions about working with a strategic partner who we saw was going to make significant progress over time. And if we got in with them early enough, we would be able to benefit from all of the growth that they were having, which would then translate into capabilities that we could take advantage of. That's why we came to the choice of initially building our unified data analytics platform around Databricks. And so Databricks is the engine to a large degree in terms of how we pull our data in and then organize that data and then, uh, and ultimately build a number of our uh, models around it to support the services that we offer. We then also realized that we needed to be SOC 2 compliant because a lot of companies were now very aware of the value of data. And uh, they wanted to make sure that they could retain the ownership of the data and, and protect the privacy of people who were working for them or who were being supplied, whether those was the universities. So we found a way to do that. We became SOC 2 compliant, and we also took advantage of another tool that enabled us to manage our legal and, and, and ethical data operations, if you want, through a muter and combine that. The reason we chose Immuta, by the way, is the direction Immuta was going to go in, eventually it would end up being in a strategic partnership with Databricks, which has since come to pass. And, and so we saw the the value of building Immuta as, to support some of our security, privacy, and governance framework needs. Uh, and then we worked with uh, Microsoft's Azure. And, and the idea was, if, if we're going to do this right in terms of the AI stack, we needed to focus on the infrastructure and take advantage of some of the benefits like cheap storage, elastic computing, parallel processing that were emerging in the markets at that time. We also wanted to build on a solution that supported our massive data needs. And, and, and obviously within that, there was the ingestion and the sort of thing, if you think about it, the integrity checks, our transformation validation, all the version control and metadata that had to be incorporated into that. And then we would be able to build 
tools within that uh, to enable our data science team to take advantage of the distributed computing power in terms of the frameworks that they used, the machine learning that they wanted to build on top of that, and then ultimately into some of the deep learning frameworks that we had in mind. The whole idea, to be honest with you, was driven by a series of objectives in our mind. One was, how do we get to dev zero operations? How can we support all the data types that are out there? Can we deliver a, a solution that was around convergence rather than orchestration? Although we do use orchestration today, how do we embrace the data flows that are out there? And then always making sure that we're on and uh, supporting self-service as well as distributed delivery were sort of key objectives when we stood the stack up. So we got that up and running when we embarked on that journey within about six months because of the, this approach and the strategy. And then our first test was a, a product we called Campaigns, where we were working with, at the time, recruiters within talent teams within companies. And they were basically wanting to set up campaigns to tap into the talent. And what we learned from that, trying to base your market without the learner being involved or the individual being involved is not a successful strategy because the talent the recruiting teams have too many other tools and too many other capabilities so that they are overwhelmed by the technology. Uh, and that was a very valuable lesson for us in that initial MVP because we realized then and there that if we want to drive change, we really need to get to a place where we can quantify the value of learning and, and ultimately the recommendations that come from that at the individual level so they can take ownership of their journey. This episode is encrypted by Cypherstash. Data breaches are becoming a fact of life. Know why? One of the reasons is because developers lack the right tooling to get the job done i.e. encryption at rest tools are complex and inadequate. The solution? Encryption in use with Cypherstash. Cypherstash uses searchable encryption in use technology, providing continuous and universal protection for sensitive data. With Cypherstash, you can turn your existing database into a vault, utilizing zero-trust key management, SQL native, and with no code. Though encryption is complicated, Cypherstash is easy to use. The tool fully supports SQL via a drop-in driver replacement, supporting the query types you know and love today. And did we mention it's fast? For queries over 100 million records, you can expect additional overhead of less than one millisecond. It's a no-brainer. Get started by reviewing their docs or downloading sample projects in Rails or Node plus SQLize today. Visit cypherstash.com slash codestory and get started protecting your data. This episode is supported by Treble. This day and age, APIs are a fact of life. And as such, product and engineering teams need tooling that is lightweight, real-time, and data-rich to help them ship and maintain APIs faster. That's where Treble comes in. Treble is an all-in-one platform for the entire API lifecycle. The product offers world-class monitoring and observability, providing more than 40 data points for each request, enabling you to understand everything from performance to user behavior. Dashboards help connecting your entire team for lifecycle collaboration. Documentation is automatically generated, saving massive amounts of time for your development team with every new release. And setting up Treble? Super easy and fast. In three simple steps, you can be up and running with their platform. Their pricing is designed to support API teams of all sizes. So get started with Treble today and automate your API ops. Did I mention they have a free forever plan? Find out more by visiting treble.com slash codestory. That's T-R-B-L-L-E dot com slash codestory. 
So you've got the MVP. It's working. You're getting traction. How are, how did you progress the product from there and mature it? And I think what I'm interested in there is how you went about building your roadmap and what sort of process you followed to decide this is the next most important thing to build or to address with Astromute. It's a fascinating conversation because the roadmap is the intent. It's not actually a clear sign of execution. And so we've been talking about uh, how we focus on the market. And, and in many cases, one of the things that's driven us, and this is important for MVP, is uh, learning from our lessons. Our failures teach us just as much as our successes. The key is knowing how to very quickly learn from those mistakes and translate them into uh, lessons that can be uh, successful. And I always say to the team, we're gonna break things, but we have to fix them cheerfully. When we look at our uh, roadmap, we, we, we try to organize it around our agile XP methodology for delivery, which is we, we have teams that are focused on value streams, and those value streams will drive the roadmaps for ultimately the products that we're invested in. And so each roadmap item allows us to understand how to prioritize and scope the conversation around the desired outcomes and impact. And then we also make sure that the roadmap item that we're building is going to move beyond our technical teams and ultimately connect the organization across functions for both alignment and opportunities that allow creative thinking on how we can deliver the desired goal. So by bringing in more people. And then finally, our, our processes has to recognize that our product development is about risks and trade-offs. And so we want to surface those discussions for alignment across the leadership. Uh, and, and make sure that when we make a decision about what we're going to go for, we do it knowing that everybody in, in the organization and potentially outside the organization understands why we're taking the bet and they understand the risk to that bet. We have a philosophy focusing on what's needed now, what's coming up next, and what is the future going to look like so that we can provide context around our prioritized items and, and we have within that our penciled in timelines so that we can set expectations around the delivery. And as we go further out, we know that the, the cone of uncertainty around timelines becomes very real. So by focusing on these sort of three areas, we can narrow down that uncertainty and get very specific around where our delivery is expected to come to life. And then we use release management uh, activities around that uh, to really have conversations about the execution and what is it that we, what are the dependencies we have? What's the critical path look like? Where do we make decisions around that? Those criteria help us then have a conversation with the rest of the organization so they can see what we're looking at strategically from the roadmap through the release management meetings. We can have tactical conversations about how do we get it done? Uh, and then ultimately set a set of priorities so that the teams themselves know what they need to be working on next. And, and then they can have some freedom around how they organize around that work so that we ultimately stay within uh, the sort of expected timeframe. So let's flip to team then. So how do you go about building your team? And what do you look for in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses to join you? My approach has is one that I... I've lived with for many years now is what I call the three C's. And so it's culture, capacity to master, capabilities. When I look at an individual, one of the first things we'll do is we'll get their resume, look through the resume, and I'll break it down and try to understand 
What are the white spaces between the narrative and the resume you're trying to tell me? So what are the inconsistencies? What are the things that are in there that don't quite gel? Because those become interesting points for conversation. When we do the first phone screen, it's a very informal sort of experience where we'll start asking questions and talk to somebody about, tell us about your journey. Very similar to the way you brought me into the conversation so that we can relax people and have them start to be much more comfortable about telling us about their journey and, and ultimately how they got to certain points and what were the lessons they learned and things like that. And what we're looking for in there is we're trying to hear what are the phrases and the words and the behaviors and, and ultimately the experiences that they're articulating? How do they tie back to our values in the company? How do we pick up on things like, did they do things in a frugal way? Where was the ownership? Were they customer focused? What was the level of accountability they had? And so that gives us a good frame for understanding if the person's a culture fit. And, and then we will, if they are, then say, okay, we're interested in talking to you further. And that's when we bring them into a more formal interview where we start to then look at their capacity to master. Because the simple truth, anybody who's been in the technology industry knows that things change every three to five years. And what I'm very interested in is, does that person have the capacity to master new changes, new techniques, new capabilities? Can they grow? Can they develop? Can they be successful? in our organization because they are open to all of these changes that are coming at them and they can make decisions about the ones that will be most relevant to invest in to help us be successful. And then the last one is capabilities. What are the capabilities they have today? And, and, and to be honest with you, I put less weighting on the capabilities because if they're a culture fit and they've got capacity to master, the chances are they're gonna be successful. And, and, and as a result of that approach, the employees that we have in the team have been with us for the long haul and continue to stay with us. And we've had very little attrition because we really put a focus on making sure that they understood what values we were looking for and why it was important for them to own those values in a way that helped them be successful within the company. This episode was automatically optimized by CAST. If you run cloud-native software on AWS, Google Cloud, or Azure, you know how out of hand the bill can get. This uncertainty hurts your business, but you can solve it with Cast AI. Cast AI automates cloud costs, performance, and security management for hundreds of companies of all sizes. The platform's customers begin saving immediately and cut an average of over 60%. So before you go and sign a multi-year contract with a cloud provider or lay people off, check out what Cast AI can do for you. To get you saving even faster, CastAI is offering a free cloud cost audit with a personal consultation. Visit cast.ai slash codestory to get started. This episode is supported by Terso. Terso is the open source edge database from the creators of LibSQL, the popular fork of SQLite. If you put your edge computing close to your users, like with Netlify or Vassell edge functions or Cloudflare workers, you should put your data there too in order to maximize performance gains at the edge. Terso makes it easy. With a developer experience of SQLite and a distributed database, you can replicate much closer to your users than traditional database offerings in the cloud. Terso's lightweight, easy to use, and free to get started. The team at Terso is offering a generous starter plan specifically for CodeStory listeners. Head over to terso.tech CodeStory and get started today. That's T-U-R-S-O tech slash code store. Terso, welcome to the Data Edge. 
so this will be interesting given what you're building and and I imagine it's it's a complicated problem. Tell me about scalability and, and sort of, you know, where the areas uh, that you've built this product or you building this product that are built with scale in mind from the beginning. And what are the areas where maybe you've been fighting it as you grow? One of the reasons why we decided to partner with companies like Databricks and Immuter is because they would help us to scale. The reason why we're on Azure is because they would help us to scale. So the scaling challenge, we we understood very early on. In fact, uh, the founding team, uh, Adam, uh, and, and, and then his other members of the leadership team, Rob Gillespie and myself, have all worked in uh, companies where we've had to scale massively. So we knew it was going to come. The, the question, of course, is finding that balance between investing in scale and continuing to build out the products. And so that's where, if there's ever been challenges, is where we've invested in the MVP, really to prove out something without necessarily worrying about the scaling side of it. And then when we realize that, oh yeah, this is something that the market is responding to and we know has got uh, the capability to be successful for us, then we are going to want to invest in scale. And so what we try to do is find that balance between leveraging our partners so that we can scale up, but also be mindful of ensuring that when we make that investment decision, that there is actually value in the market that's demanding that type of scale. The other challenge, of course, is, and and we had to do this from the beginning, is when you're building a skills index around every individual, you are going to, over time, and, and we have something in the region of 3 million profiles now sitting on our uh, database. That in itself is a significant amount of scale. So you have to start thinking about your technology and architectures around how do you optimize for each individual and keep the responsiveness at a level that they would expect as well as your customers who are paying for it. We're always mindful that the index is going to grow and with its complexity is going to come. And so we try to take a very simple approach by partnering with those who know how to scale, taking advantage of those capabilities. As you step out on the balcony, you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? To be honest with you, the thing that I'm most proud of is what we have today in terms of the engineering capability, the product capability. Our product today involves uh, a number of different disciplines around the architecture itself. In fact, I, I sometimes I'm less worried about the technology than I am about the people that are involved and, and how they can actually uh, gain the accessibility to the technology. So the data science team that we built that works with like the R&D engine for our, our company, and they're the ones that are constantly looking for ways to figure out how the skills can drive outcomes. And, and, and always looking for ways based on what they see in the data to allow us to outline other ways and capabilities to level the playing field by bringing talent to the opportunity. So that, that, that their job is to constantly think about how to develop features that enable us to look at skills and then use that to map to the outcomes that we want in terms of hiring, retention, etc. And then the engineering organization constantly looks at ways where we can use technology as a servant. And, and, and so we've got uh, a number of capabilities where we automate uh, our infrastructure. So it's infrastructure as a service. So we're building our infrastructure as we need it. We're also automating our services uh, in a way that enables their engineers to basically work through APIs 
to pull the data when it's available or the new features when they're available so they can be uh, surfaced into the applications that we're building, whether that's services from our level set platform to capabilities that we offer with current applications like Skillset 360, where we're mapping veterans' journeys. Essentially, we're taking their records, mapping them into skills that can be translated into civilian roles. We have a ready, set, enrollment marketing toolkit, which is where we are able to bring in alumni and we understand where they are. And this is for mapping to MBAs. We understand where they are in terms of their skills. And then we offer, we show them a view. It's like a credit report of where they are in terms of their skills and how the MBA can improve their outcomes in terms of jobs, salary, et cetera, and show them which MBA programs they can use to actually close that gap. If we can realize the potential of every single individual in the U.S. purely on the skills and the capability they have, rather than the school they went to, I think it will actually lead to a a, a huge, massive spurt of uh, productivity and, and innovation for the U.S. Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. The simple truth is mistakes are just a fact of life within a space like this where you're really pushing aggressively to change the way people see the world and more importantly empower them to see the world that that enables them to have success and a good example we've had challenges with sometimes the technical approaches that we've taken on one occasion when we're trying to do our infrastructure as a service model we realized that some of the capability that uh, we were using with one product, Terraform, actually wasn't living up to billing. And so we had to basically break down that entire stack, going back to the team saying, this isn't working. We need to go with another approach, which we ended up doing, which was Pulumi. Uh, we essentially pulled everything that we were working on with Terraform. We, we essentially said, this is not working. It's not going to get us to where we need to be. And it's not actually helping us in terms of the automation that we wanted to, to achieve. Talking to the team about it, and I, this is where my, my tagline comes from, which is, we're going to break things. Let's do so cheerfully. We realized that we were breaking things and uh, it wasn't actually giving us the performance or the productivity we wanted. So we ended up going back to the drawing board, having a look at other capabilities. When we found it, we then reinvested effort and time into standing up uh, a new capability for our infrastructure as a service. Uh, And so that's just a small example of it. Uh, the, The truth is we make mistakes. On some occasions, those mistakes turn into happy benefits where we'll realize, oh, I didn't realize it could do that. And you suddenly take advantage of that in terms of your product or the way that you see people are engaging with your product. One of the other uh, things we realized when we launched our Ready Set Enrollment uh, Marketing Toolkit is that we don't have the full view of the learner's journey from the moment that we surface them up to the moment that they actually sign up for the MBA program. And missing that last piece of the funnel, that last mile, that close piece, was very hard for us to ultimately organize around because we couldn't tell what the success was and it was were we making an impact with those learners? Were they actually signing up to the programs that made the most sense for them based on our recommendations? And so that was a valuable lesson for us to say, okay, we perhaps need to look at it from a different perspective of we'll be the data services engine and we'll use that to enable us to embed into workflows 
so that we can actually support our customers more effectively by helping them close the loop and seeing what the journey of that learner was and, and then what lessons can be learned from both us as well as the customer so they can improve uh, either their programs or the approach that they have to securing learners to come into their programs. Okay, what does the future look like for the product and for your team? The future is, frankly, is, is, uh, it's amazing. The simple fact is, as I said earlier, if we can actually identify the skills and capabilities of an individual and we can help them align with the right programs so they can close any gaps to secure economic mobility through their career choices, then I think we can actually open up so many programs within the U.S. can be opened up to support the underserved employable community in a way that they can actually be surfaced for these jobs that are coming up. And, and for example, the Inflation Reduction Act has a huge amount of support around bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. But here's the challenge with that. How do you make sure that the workforce around the new manufacturing plant is capable to do the work that is necessary for that plant to be successful. There's money that's been put aside to provide that training and that support. Wouldn't it be great, say, somebody like Astrum U can come in and say, let's look at the population. By the way, we can identify all these individuals and they're already two thirds of the way to being employable by your plant. And here are the programs that they need. That is a huge productivity gain for the plant in many ways because they can actually get to talent quicker and they can optimize that talent prior to them starting work. But it's a big boon for those individuals who in the past haven't been able to get access to those kinds of opportunities because they didn't know where or how to do it. And we can come in and solve that problem. We can tap into the rich diversity of the U.S., in terms of skills, background, etc., and use that as a way of driving economic mobility for huge segments of the population that have never had that opportunity before. Let's switch to you, Kai. Who influences the way that you work? Name a person or many persons or something you look up to and why. In many ways, my ethos was developed through the schooling that I had, where the expectations were set around your ethic towards work, towards the way you involved yourself in the community, to the how you found a way to balance all of those commitments with your own sort of personal needs. But I, I was fortunate. I also had a number of people along the way that I was able to be mentored by or, or who saw the potential in me. And they would take me under their wing and coach me and, and support me. And the first sort of massive experience I had of that was my first job. It wasn't my direct manager, he was the department head, but he used to give me lifts back and forth. We lived in the same area, so he'd give me a lift into work and give me a lift back home. And in the, the, those short journeys, this guy, Peter Bruff, would give me all sorts of gems in terms of feedback and insights and so on. So I was listening to him and, and learning and asking questions. And, and I've found that's really been my path to success has been afforded opportunities to talk to people who have been in these positions and then ask them for advice and guidance. Deb Tyson, who was perhaps a manager I had, unfortunately, only for a short time because I ended up getting recruited to come out to San Francisco, but 
In that year that I worked with her, I learned so much about accountability, ownership, how to conduct yourself as a manager and how to conduct yourself as an individual contributor. What I liked about her, she was tough but fair and would hold you accountable and, and make sure that you understood that. If you did well, she wasn't shy of coming up and giving you a pat on the back either. And, and, and I've had a number of individuals that I've learned from like that over the course of my career, and I continue to tap into people. I mentioned earlier that I do read some business books. I've read uh, Daniel Pink is somebody that I find fascinating, though it's a little bit off the, uh, the beaten path. The lady who wrote Grit that was a great example of uh, what I think we sometimes overlook. It's, it's the effort that you put into learning. It's the willingness to actually talk and reach out to people. It's the willingness to go onto programs and, and benefit from those that help you get to your place in life and help you make those smart decisions. But the, the one thing that really did help me see how the world truly works, is I was invited by the Prince of Liechtenstein to join his Liechtenstein Global Trust Academy, which was, I was working in one of his, in the asset management side of his business empire or asset management and private banking. The interesting uh, thing about that course is it was very avant-garde. He had people coming in to teach you history, art, how to think differently, how to exercise, as well as the hardcore lessons of private banking and asset management, which was those lessons were taught to us by Wharton University. But in the morning, we'd get up at a ridiculous hour, three, four o'clock in the morning to go rowing, for example. So we learned what the benefit of teamwork was like. We were taught how to organize teams by the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. We had politics discussions with P.J. O'Rourke. We were taught how to think and, and, and be creative by the uh, Nobel Poet Laureate of Britain at the time. These opportunities came in and, and it was done, and I was a junior uh, manager at the time, and I was brought in to these, this program with people who were the CEO of the bank or the country leaders or other high-level executives. I realized that everyone, is, everyone has a similar journey. Everybody is human. Everybody makes mistakes. And when you actually get exposed to that, it leaves you with a, a strong sense of, okay, this is how the world works. When you know how the world works, it gives you the incentive to continually push for improvement. Last question, Kai. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person, having gone down this road a bit? First question I'll ask them is, what's the problem they're trying to solve? So I, what I'm trying to learn from that is I'm trying to figure out, have they built something that's actually going to be successful or have they just built something because it's cool? If they can come back to me and they can tell me what the real problem is and why they built the solution and service to that problem and how they're thinking about um, the business model in service to solving the problem, that then gets me excited. And, and obviously, I think it's important for all entrepreneurs to be aware of uh, what they're trying to solve may not necessarily be wanted by the market. And the sooner you get that reality into your mindset, the better. That's fantastic advice. Well, Kai, thank you for being on the show today. And thank you for telling the creation story of Astromu. Thank you very much, Noah, and I appreciate the time. And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story. 
Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.